I would direct your prayerful attention to the portion that we read, the first epistle of Paul the Apostle to Timothy, and chapter 1, and reading for our text, verse 5, verse 5. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5, we are told what the end of the commandment is, or what is the aim of it, what is the effect of it. We are told very clearly by our Lord of the aim, the reason why he came into this world to bear witness to the truth. That he would be a ransom, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. The whole aim of his life was that through his perfect life of obedience to the law, he would magnify it and make it honourable and work out a righteousness to be able to give to believers who do not have a righteousness of their own. The whole end and aim of Christ's death upon Calvary was that he should pay the debt that his people cannot pay that he should lay down his life, that he should suffer, bleed and die to put away their sins through the sacrifice of himself. That which he came to do, he has done. The empty tomb is a witness that his sacrifice was accepted that the sins of those for whom he died were put away. That is accomplished. That is to be remembered, that sacrifice in the ordinances of his house, in baptism, buried with him by baptism into death and risen again in newness of life. And in the Lord's Supper, this do in remembrance of me, he do show forth his death, till he come. There was an aim, there was a work, and he intimated this when he was twelve years of age. Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? This was testified from the cross, it is finished. The work that the father gave him to do, he finished, he accomplished, he did it. Now, there is a work in one sense that the law of God has. By the law is the knowledge of sin. And our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Those that through the law of God and through the grace of God have been brought to know that they are sinners. We are told in this chapter that the law is good 
if a man use it lawfully. It is not good if the end or object of the law is made out to be a way of salvation, a way of being saved. That is not the end that God designed it to be. It is through the law that all the world shall be brought in guilty before God. It is through the law being applied that, like the Apostle says in Romans 7, when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That which was ordained unto life, I found to be unto death. What he means is that being convicted of his sin through the law, it brought him to feelingly die spiritually to any hope in saving himself. But that law was ordained unto life. The reason why he was convicted, why he fell under the law, was that the Lord would save him, not through the law, but through the gospel, through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that the law is our schoolmaster unto Christ, that the aim of the law in God's overall plan and scheme of the gospel Yes, it is as in this chapter to be for those that are ungodly and to restrain their wicked works and to be as a testimony against them of their evil works and ways. But the law in God's plan of salvation is to make known the necessity of Christ make him precious and to magnify what he has done in fulfilling that law and in dying that the law required. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so the law has an end, an object that some can misuse Some can make out it is something different than it is. This was the error of the Galatians after they had been preached the gospel. They had others come and preach that they needed to fulfill the law, especially, namely, the ceremonial law in circumcision. And except they did, they would not be saved. The Apostle told them that that was not a gospel. It was not even an element of it. He says, and testifies to every man that would obey the law in that way, that he has fallen from grace. Instead of being saved by God's grace, free favour, in applying the merits of his son and his son's death to us. 
Here is someone that is wanting to pay their own debt, which they will never do. And so our Lord gave an end of the law, another end of the law, in the summary of the law of God. And that was the two tables of the law, which was in love, that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind, is the first table toward God. And the second is like unto it, that we should love our neighbour as ourselves. That is the fulfilling of the law, is in love. In our text we have an aim. Some have thought that what Paul is referring to is the commandment that he has given to Timothy. Paul exhorts his son in the faith. He gives him commandment concerning the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. And in that sense... Whatever Paul exhorts Timothy to do, it must indeed be consistent with God's aim and God's purpose. In that sense, the end of Paul's commandment to Timothy or the end of Timothy's preaching must be this aim as set forth in our text. Charity or love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. However, as we read on further, the Apostle speaks of those that are teachers or desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. In other words, Paul has set before Timothy the gospel. He says in verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And so he commits this same gospel and same word to Timothy. As much as the coming of our Lord had an object and an aim or an end in view, so also all of the proclamation of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, has an end in view. That end is not just that we do, as the hymn writer says, rounds of dead service, forms and ways. Is not to come to the close of a service and say, well, everything went according to plan. All the right things were said and done in the right order. Or in other churches, the right robes were used, the right liturgy used. The ceremony went off lawlessly. And the whole end in view does not rise above the ceiling of the building. 
is not an end in view that leaves men happy and smug with themselves and what they've done and that God then is put in their debt that they have come and worshipped and bowed before him. The Israelites of old, many of them walked that path and were reproved by God because of it. They thought that God should so show them some great favours because, well, hadn't they met in his house? Hadn't they done what he asked? Hadn't they served him? And their end then was a way of obtaining God's favour by their works, by their ceremony. We should really think of this. What is God's aim? What is God's purpose? When he gathers his people for worship, when they hear the word of the gospel, what does God aim at doing? What is to happen? We know it is linked inseparably with what our Lord did on Calvary. Paul, he determined to know nothing among men save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He was to preach the gospel. He was to preach what Christ had accomplished and what done. In his letter, his first letter to the Corinthians, and in chapter 15, the beginning of that chapter, he gives a very brief summary as to what the gospel is. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. So there's one end, one aim of the gospel, that the Corinthians were to stand in that gospel. That was to be the foundation upon which they stood. And then in verse 2, we have another aim, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That is a summary of the gospel. That also gives the aim in view. And the apostle in another place says that through the foolishness of preaching, that it had pleased God to save sinners. And so it is through the preaching of what Christ has done, authoritatively declaring the word of God, what the Lord has done, the end in view is that men, women, children, 
those that hear that word will be saved. How will they be saved? You might say, well, surely the end in view is that they will be brought to heaven at last, have eternal life and live eternally beyond the grave. That is one aim in view. But the end of the commandment, the end of the gospel that's set before us here, it begins in time. The eternal life that God gives his children through faith in what his beloved son has done at Calvary begins in time. If you and I are saved, then it will be through the word of God preached having an effect upon our hearts, upon our lives. It will change us. It will be that that is the true effect and witness and what God intends by the preaching of the word, that it will change men's lives. It will make them new creatures in Christ that he will make them to be renewed in the spirit of their minds, that they be born again of the spirit, and that there be those very specific areas in which the mark of God's sovereign saving grace is known in our hearts and lives. And those marks are here set before us in our text. The Apostle introduces them with these words, Now the end of the commandment is. He tells us what the aim of preaching is, the aim of the gospel, the aim of the fulfilled law of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he sets before us three things what it is and those three things will be our points this morning the first is charity or love out of a pure heart the second is of a good conscience and the third is of faith unfeigned if you and I are saved are blessed through the word these three things will be true of us we will still be sinners but we will be sinners with these marks these three marks that are the aim, the end that God has in view through his blessing upon the preached word. The first one then is love out of a pure heart. It is not just Love, it is charity, which is a practical working love, not just in word, but in deed. 
The pure heart is a heart that is unmixed. If we have water that is said to be pure, then we would not expect to find impurities in it. If we have gold that is pure, we would not expect that it would be an alloy of some other metal that is joined with it. Purity means that there is just one substance there, not two. Our Lord was very clear, ye cannot serve God and mammon. If any man is a friend of the world, then he is the enemy of God. It cannot be in the same heart a friendship with the world as loving the world and loving God as well. Those two things, they cannot go together. Love not the world nor the things that are in the world for all that is of the world, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes is not of the Father but is of the world. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians, his first epistle and chapter 4, he sets before them the commandments that were given by the Lord Jesus Christ. He exhorted them that they would walk as they ought to walk and to please God. And the first thing that he mentions is love. But before he mentions love in verse 9, brotherly love, he first clears the decks and makes sure that that love is a pure love. And so he says in verse 3, that this is the will of God, even your sanctification that ye should abstain from fornication. And he speaks against uncleanness of any kind. He says that God's children should know how to possess their vessel, or their body, in sanctification and honour, not in the lust of concupiscence or evil sexual desire, even as the Gentiles which know not God. And we are to really notice that before God speaks of love to us through Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians, he makes sure that we understand that that love is to be a pure love. When King Saul died and Jonathan his son, then David lamented for Jonathan. 
And he says that the love that he had for Jonathan surpassed the love of women. Now some in our evil and perverted day would charge David and say that that was a love of a man to man in an impure, wrong and and evil way. The word of God makes it very clear. We can love a man to a man, a woman to a woman with a pure love in the gospel, not in any way sexual, not in any way impure, but love them for the gospel's sake, love them as God's children. And we have to be very clear on that. What we have here is an evidence of the end of the gospel or end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart. How vital that the effect of the gospel within is to make us hate sin, hate evil, and that how we think And how we regulate our lives is according to the word of God. And that our love is a love that is according to the word of God. A pure love. How vital this is. Because as we said before, the two two tables of the law of God, both of them are summed up in love. Love to God and love to man, love to our neighbour. When John writes his general epistles, he dwells very much on love. In 1 John, right through that epistle, and he gives some very vital words of evidence of being a child of God through love. In chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, we have, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. So here again we're reminded that there are different manners of love, different ways of love. Here is a pure love, the love of the Father, the eternal Father, and is a love that is bestowed upon sinners, and it is to bring them to be called the sons of God. Throughout this passage, he then uses this love, as in verse 10, to mark out who are the Lord's. In this the children of God are manifest, or made known, and the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness, is not of God, 
neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him, because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Then he gives this beautiful testimony of being a child of God. We know that we have passed from death unto life, Because we love the brethren, he that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Those whom Christ has redeemed, those that were chosen in him from the foundation of the world, those that have been called by the same gospel, redeemed by the same precious blood, there is to be a love to them for the truth's sake because they are dear brethren and when we come then to our text on the end or aim of the commandment the effect that God gives his word and brings sinners to believe it and receive it and hear it is that they have charity out of a pure heart, a real practical love. You think of Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened, and immediately the effect of her love was to take the apostles into her home and to minister to them. You think of the woman that washed the feet of our Lord with the hairs of her head. Those things that were done, those things that were done by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus in lovingly taking down the body of our Lord and laying it in the tomb. Love has a way that shows itself, is a very practical love, is evidenced and is very lovely when the Lord's servants, when the people of God receive those tokens, evidences of love of those who have received the word and received the gospel through them. The apostle had many sorrowing times. He had those times that he said the more that he preached to them, the less he was loved. Very sad when that is the effect. It's a very blessed thing where there is a cleaving to those by whom God has brought the word of life for the soul and a cleaving to those that we discern know the same gospel, the same God, the same work of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit abides in them. The Lord does not send forth his servants and to proclaim the gospel, to have the end effect there to be controversies and anger and bitterness and malice. 
The Lord says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples indeed, and that ye love one another. James, in his epistle, he uses the illustration of a fountain of water. He says, From that same fountain cannot come pure water and dirty water clean and unclean and he reproves those to whom he wrote that from the same mouth cannot come blessing and cursing we are to be through the effect of the gospel and if the word of the gospel is effectual in us you will have this fruit charity out of a pure heart. May the Lord make us to be of one mind and one heart in serving the Lord and in love one to another. And where we may feel that we do not have that, may this word be an encouragement to us. This is not what we're born with. The Apostle Paul He was first hailing men and women to prison. He hated the Lord. He needed the Lord to come, to change him, to bless him. And so do you and I. Whatever we have, we do not have of our own. But we have through the blessing of the Lord and the blessing of the gospel. And as we meet, may we be encouraged to think, this is God's aim. This is why we sit under the gospel. This is why we hear his word. This is to be the effect. And may we pray and ask, Lord, give me a pure heart and give me love to the brethren out of that pure heart. May this end and aim be realised in me that I and what thou wouldst have me to be, the same as what thy end is in view, wherever the gospel is proclaimed and set forth. So that is the first. Love out of a pure heart. Then there is the second, a good conscience, of a good conscience. What is a conscience? Now everyone has a conscience. It is a voice, some have said, inside your head. It is a person's moral sense of right and wrong it bears a testimony it has a remembrance and it remembers and it brings to remembrance we think of our Lord and when the Pharisees the scribes 
brought a woman that was taken in adultery and they said that Moses commanded that such should be stoned but what sayest thou? The Lord said to them, at first he did not answer, he just wrote on the ground. And then he said to them, Who is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And then he kept writing on the ground. We're not told what he wrote. But you can picture the silence. And you can picture each one of them there. Their conscience beginning to work. And the scriptures tell us that each one being convicted of their own conscience, they went out beginning at the eldest to the last until there's none left. And the Lord looks up and sees only the woman and he says, Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man. And he says to her, Neither indeed do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Their conscience testified that they also had committed adultery whether in thought and looking upon a woman to lust after her, or in actual deed the same as what they were reigning her. Conscience bore a faithful testimony and they had to bow before it. Paul says to the Gentiles that the law, even though they don't know the letter of the law is given on Mount Sinai, Yet the law is written in their hearts and they either are excusing or excusing one another or accusing one another in their own consciences. They have a conscience. But it's not guided by the law of God, it's guided by their own thoughts of what is right or wrong. Really, the remnants of the fall, though we are fallen, there is still a sense, a moral sense of what is right and what is wrong. The scriptures speak of the case of a seared conscience, a conscience that has been trodden on again and again, that is testified, that is said it's still small voice, that's wrong, don't do it, don't walk that way. But it's been ignored, it's been resisted and in the end it is so hard, it is so seared, it doesn't speak anymore. That is not a good conscience. A good conscience is a tender conscience. It is a teachable conscience. We do not want a conscience that is not a good one. The Apostle Paul, he says, and he testified that right from a child, he always exercised himself to have a good conscience before God and before men. 
And we might think, how could he have that when he was hailing men and women to prison? He verily thought that he was doing God's service. What he did, he did with a clear conscience because he didn't know any better. He didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And that tells us two things. One, the aim should be with us as well as it was with the Apostle, always to have a good conscience, a conscience that is not accusing us, a conscience that is bearing witness that what we have done and how we walk is a right way. But it also tells us how vital it is that that conscience is informed rightly informed by the gospel, informed by the law, that it testifies rightly. You know, if when we were children, our parents said to us, don't go to such a place, when we were going to that place, in spite of what they said, our conscience would bear a nickel, we were told, do not go there. And it would be based upon what the parent had said. We might have many laws in this land. And I know there's been some that I have broken and not realised I had. And then I found out that actually that was forbidden. You shouldn't have been doing that. And... My conscience was clear in what I was doing first. But from the time that I understood what the law was, then I couldn't do that same thing without conscience uh, bearing a witness that it was wrong. The word of God guards a tender conscience. Paul, when he was writing of those that were fearful of eating things offered to idols, he says, to me an idol is nothing. It doesn't matter if I eat things offered to it because my conscience tells me it's just a bit of wood, it's nothing. But some of the brethren, to them, they weren't that clear in that at all. And if they were to eat something offered to an idol, their conscience would accuse them. And so he would then be very careful that he did not, by what he did, cause a stumbling block to them. God is very careful and is one of the great blessings in our land And yet we wonder, even though it is in our statute books so much, that men do not have to swear or say things against their conscience, that it should never be something in our land of which someone is forced to say what they do not believe. And yet more and more in our land we hear of those losing their jobs because they refuse to use the pronouns which people want to be used because they, uh, the, uh, the people of God believe that 
we are made male or female. We should not use anything different than that. And yet those that cannot for conscience sake go along with the directions that so many institutions are taking today, they're losing their jobs. In other words, they're being forced to say things, to do things against their conscience. That really is against the constitution, is against the law. And yet it is being brought in again and again. But it is a blessing to be able to worship God according to our conscience and that none be forced to worship or uh, do something of which their conscience accuses them. But this evidence here, a good conscience, is a conscience that is informed through the word of God. It is a conscience that doesn't just take one part of the word and ignore the other. It's not a conscience that says, you have broken the law there, therefore you will go to hell, therefore you are condemned. It's a conscience that says, yes, you have broken the law, but there is Christ and there is Calvary, there is hope, by grace you are saved, not by works of righteousness which we have done. And a conscience that knows that and bears witness that we are trusting alone in Christ. A conscience also that will bear witness if we are actually sinning that grace might abound. We are living our lives thinking it doesn't matter whether we sin, whether we do evil things or not, because, well, Christ has died and we can be forgiven. Really, if we know the scriptures, our conscience should tell us you are not walking in a right way. You are walking contrary to the gospel, contrary to the word of God. A good conscience is one of which God himself governs the thoughts and intents of the heart according to the gospel and according to grace, bringing every part of it. And so that we might, when we come down to the grave, have a good conscience, that we might look back and we might realise that though our lives have been lives of sin, Though we've walked in the ways of sin, yet we have, as in John 1, confessed our sins, brought them before the Lord. We have sought repentance. We've turned from those sins and it may be had to turn from them again and again and again. But our conscience testifies. Like the Apostle, he says, The good I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I do. His conscience bore witness. He really did want to do good. He really did not want to do evil. And his conscience bore witness that this was really what he was. He wasn't 
being one that took advantage of the gospel in a wrong way, but in a right way. And so when the word is preached, the law is preached, the gospel is preached, may our conscience speak according to that. An unctuous light to all that is right, a bar to all that is wrong, the fear of the Lord governing our conscience. Well, I must come to the last one, which is a faith un. Feigned. That is not imitated. You think of the solemn case of Simon Magus, who believed, who was baptized by Philip, and then when Peter was imparting the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands, he offered him money that he might obtain and have that gift to be able to do the same. And Peter says, Thy money perish with thee, that thou hast thought to get the gift of God through money, obtain it in that way. The root of the matter was not in him. The true faith of God was not in him. Whatever he was doing, he was trying to imitate the people of God, Judas as well, no doubt the same, looking as if they were, but they weren't. Now I know many, maybe some of you, have greatly tried sometimes whether your faith is a feigned faith. But I believe this, and this is what I feel is set forth here, a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, the faith of God's elect, the faith according that cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, a person that does not want to deceive themselves, they don't want to deceive other people, they don't want to deceive God, they want to truly believe what they do believe and truly want to believe the word of God. There's not a thought in their head of deliberately trying to deceive. They're not going to say, I want to be a church member. I'll listen to what they want me to say. And I'll come to a church meeting and I'll just utter the things that they want me to say and I can get into the church. The very aim then would be to deceive. But if we come and just say exactly what God has done in our lives and what the Lord is to us, you might think and be very fearful it's not good enough or the church will not receive me. But if we're coming and we're not wanting to deceive, we're wanting to tell it just as it is. You know, the woman that touched the garment of our Lord came behind him in the press. 
He said, who touched me? You know, she came and told him all. Told him everything. And I believe this, this effect, faith unfeigned, a belief, a trust in God. And there's not a part of it that is scheming, double-minded, a subtle person that is just telling the people of God or the Lord what they think they want to hear and being something different. May the Lord give us this threefold effect under the preaching of the word. Charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned because where we don't have that we're told in verse 6 from which some having swerved or not aiming at have turned aside unto vain jangling that is the preachers not aiming at that and then we have those in verse 19 he says holding faith and a good conscience with some having put away concerning faith and made shipwreck. In other words, they haven't held faith. They haven't held what they believed. They'd put away a good conscience. And it was a cause of shipwreck. And he gives names to them in the 20th verse. Well, may the Lord bless this word and grant us to be always mindful. What is the end of the preaching? What is the end of the commandment? And is it realised in us, in our lives, in our love, in our consciences, in our faith? My word, says the Lord, shall not return unto me void. It shall accomplish the thing whereto I sent it. Our text is the thing whereto God sent it. May the Lord add his blessing. Amen.